Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Voices, Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I'm deeply honored to be joined by Dr. Charles Scriven, a legend of Adventism and a familiar face and voice and writer for the Spectrum community. Welcome, Chuck. I am very happy to be here, Alex. Well, I am delighted as well, and I'm looking forward to our conversation because you've been writing uh, very regularly on the website, exploring some essential issues in Adventism that need to be resolved. What led you to begin raising these uh, issues and and pursuing this uh, project? Well, I think that uh, so-called progressive Adventists, I used to shy away from that adjective, but I now think of it as a way of saying we're oriented toward the Holy Spirit and toward guidance into deeper truth. I think so-called progressive Adventism have have really, for a long time, meaning for all of my adult life, we have been very preoccupied with what's wrong with Adventism. We began to realize that the Genesis story presents problems if we think it has to cohere perfectly with contemporary science. And then we began to realize that Ellen White was a human being as well as a messenger of God. And we had to cope with the reality that um, the conventional convictions surrounding her ministry were probably in some ways misleading. And uh, over the years that, interest in, not to say obsession with, what's wrong with Adventism has become kind of characteristic of a lot of progressive Sabbath school classes. We're always engaged in critique. Now, let me say that critique is a good thing. Theology is intended to be um, a, a conversation that we engage in while we are on the way. That is, while we are walking the Christian walk. And so there will always be critique. And it's almost always helpful if there is critique. And here in these articles that I've been uh, uh, sharing with the community off and on over the last almost a year, I've called it time to start over, I began with critique. But I should just say this, that I've gotten to the place now where I think that the challenge for progressive Adventism is not simply to engage in deconstruction of convention that may now seem wrongheaded. The challenge for progressive Adventism is to engage in construction of a new version of the tradition that is faithful to the tradition and yet fresh enough and honest enough to actually engage uh, our members or at least our thoughtful members in conversation toward a better understanding and a better practice of Adventist life. Yes. So I think that's the underlying motivation, really. I want to get to the point of construction, Great. the point of rebuilding. So you raised some issues here. Uh, I'll name them really briefly. Uh, you talk about the need to, uh, the issues surrounding Ellen White, as you call it, the, the second one, the genesis of things, the investigative judgment, and issues surrounding 
1844. You then uh, talk about eschatology and then the tension between the sort of evangelical idolatry of the written word versus what you draw our attention to Christ, the living word. So um, I'd like to actually jump back for a second, though, because you have lived a life that has in many ways embodied both construction and destruction, not not destruction, deconstruction, let's say it that way, (laughs) in that you have been around a church that was growing, but also sometimes destroying itself not following its best impulses, not living as it could be, as you nicely point out in your article where you explore Bonhoeffer and also Adventists who were absolutely ready to help out during the civil rights struggle, but were criticized for it, including from the Adventist Review. So there's this tension. It's not just, say, progressives who are out there critiquing and maybe even undermining the anchors of our faith, sometimes the people who think that they are doing the most to hold things firm are the ones who are destroying. So I love that you're calling our attention to being constructive. And I'm wondering where you learned that. How did you find a way to kind of walk this tightrope in your own journey as you were thinking about how you lead institutions and, and think through the issues of Adventism? Well, I grew up in a minister's family, and uh, I never, as a young person, had any other thought but then that then but that I could be uh, Adventist. I went to college at Walla Walla, where we had a very cordial uh, religion faculty, and where I had colleagues and classmates, some of whom are well known. I was a classmate of Dick Hart, for example, who's the president of Loma Linda still, and uh, it was a very constructive young adulthood for me. Then I got to the seminary. And in the seminary, I also found uh, myself in the company of faculty members that I regarded as congenial, many classmates that I love, many of them well known. I started out, for example, in the same class with Richard Rice, and I was a year behind, but he was there when I was there. Uh, John Brunt, then Jonathan Butler came uh, just one year after I started. I loved my experience there. I also had teachers at that time in the seminary who were willing, sometimes directly, often less directly, to raise questions. I still remember when one seminary pointed his finger to the the Geology Institute, I think it has a different name now, and described it as a theological irrelevance. And that (laughs) took me aback, aback. but he did it in class. And uh, needless to say, he ended up not teaching a long time in the seminary. He was clearly a non-fundamentalist. Now, at the same time, I was undergoing the uh, intellectual stresses that anyone has to face as they mature into adulthood. Um, I also, in the second year when I was in the seminary, came under the influence of Roy Branson. Now, he became a good friend. But Roy has uh, undoubtedly had astonishing influence in a certain circle of Adventists who were there uh, beginning in the late 60s and in the early 70s. And what we all noticed about Roy was that he himself was very affirming of the Adventist tradition, 
even as he was advancing ideas about the social implications of the gospel, about the importance of the Hebrew prophets, introducing us to uh, philosophers who were honest enough to allow that certain questions faced Christianity that were going to be difficult to answer. Even as he was doing that, he always came across as uh, a deeply devoted uh, person of faith and commitment to the church. And I think that from the very beginning, I had kind of a constructive uh, feeling about my own mission. So, for example, when I went on shortly afterwards to become one of the founding editors, not the editor of Insight Magazine, I was publishing people who raised questions, but also people who were uh, trying to establish a new way of thinking. So I, for example, wrote an article way, way back then. I'm in my early 20s, and it was called uh, uh, The Arithmetic of the Sabbath or something like that, where I was trying to get beyond mere preoccupation with numbers. At the same time, I was editing articles by Gottfried Osterwald, who was in the seminary. He had not been there when I was a student. And he was attempting to uh, shape for all of us a new and in some ways more responsible vision of what it means to be the church. So I think that the seminary, from an intellectual standpoint, was crucial and that it gave me a commitment to constructing a new way of thinking. But my previous education at Walla Walla and in an Adventist Academy had been, on the whole, quite wonderful and had established me as someone who simply enjoyed being in the company of thoughtful Adventists. It's so great to hear that history. And I am so glad you mentioned Roy Branson, of course, who uh, had such a huge influence on uh, Adventism and uh, played such a big role in uh, the Spectrum community. Um, but I'm kind of curious where your, you know, you mentioned Insight Magazine and where did your um, your love of writing come from? For instance, as I was um, reading your articles, I actually saved a couple of quotes uh, just because they sort of, you know, move along so beautifully. So if you don't mind, I'll just read one. At its most extreme, this eschatology, talking about sort of traditional Adventist understandings of the end of time, makes the divine creation less a garden to care for than a bus stop to nowhere. Earth's future is fixed. No initiative can bend its arc. Where did uh, your love of language uh, uh, come from? Well, honestly, that also goes back to Walla Walla. And the reason it goes back to Walla Walla is that we had a journalism teacher there who, I should add, became Bonnie Dwyer's teacher. She's a tad younger than I, and she was very much influenced by the same person. But I had a teacher named Roberta J. Moore. She had taught briefly at Atlantic Union College. She came out to Walla Walla, was there for quite a while, later finished off at La Sierra University. And uh, she really did convinced me that it was fun to write, or to put it more honestly, it's fun having written, <laughs> because the actual business of writing can be very, uh, uh, it can be exhausting, and it's hard to do. But because she put me into writing, because I became uh, the editor of my college paper, 
and uh, found it meaningful. I just began to develop a sense of the language. I, uh, I remember early on reading a quote from Winston Churchill, who apparently was not fluent in other foreign languages uh, than English. He said that he had determined at a young age to uh, comprehend the essential structure of the English sentence. <laughs> and it was somehow inspiring to me to be um, aware of how people as absolutely wonderful as Churchill, he, of course, was stunning as a writer. It was wonderful. And I began to aspire to be able to do it myself. And in the course of my life, I've been, and I'm going to choose my words carefully now, I've been modestly successful at this. I think I do write competently. But one thing about loving the language is that sooner or later you realize that the geniuses in the use of the English language occupy a different, almost a different level, stratosphere. Uh, they're so, so good. But they inspire me. Even when I realize that at my best, I'm, by their standards, honestly, mediocre, it's nevertheless really inspiring. So I love to try to put together sentences that aren't too long. And if I'm lucky, I use short words at least as often as the long ones. Well, let's talk about not just words strung together, but the living word, uh, which you address in your article that um, also talks about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, racial justice, and gender justice. I once heard you kind of make the point about Jesus being the center, not only of the gospel, but of the revelation of the word of God throughout the Bible. Uh, I was uh, much younger, and just the way that you said it uh, just kind of opened up my mind to that. And of course, then I went around repeating it, trying to get everyone else excited about this kind of essential thing that seemed so obvious to me once you had said it. And you get to that. And when you're talking about this, in fact, you point out that too often, to quote you, people live, uh, they, they believe in Christ without Christ. What does that mean to you? Well, it means to me this, that uh, one can pay lip service to something as basic as the idea that Christ is our true center and yet be under the sway, nevertheless, of the understandings that you have inherited. And in, in, the, in the story that I tell about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I make the point that even after he had in two successive dissertations, at a very young age, by the way, he's one of the guys that leaves you kind of dumbfounded. 24. He, uh, yeah, yeah. He had um, affirmed that Christ was at the center, and yet he also believed very much at the core of his being that Christianity was about forgiveness of sins and that it didn't really have much to do with ethics. And it was at that point, as you recall from having seen the pieces, that uh, on a scholarship of some kind, he went off to the United States, studied at Union Theological Seminary in New York. And while he was there, uh, fell under the influence of the uh, church of a very well-known church in Harlem, the Abyssin Abyssinian Baptist. And there he realized when he was in the company of people who knew oppression firsthand that you can't trust fully 
interpreters of the gospel, even people who affirm the centrality of Christ, if they do not know either directly or indirectly what it is to be abused, what it is to be um, put down, what it is to be on the edges of uh, the society. He found, now he found that that church awakened him to the reality that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not only consolation for the guilty, but also a call to a vocation of caring, or if you like, to discipleship. It was he, as nearly everyone who reads knows, who uh, coined and made, I think, uh, eternally compelling the phrase cheap grace. Yes. It was people at the Abyssinian Baptist Church where he spent weekends while he was at Union, where he even taught a Sunday school class, who inspired him to reconsider everything. So the reason we may not understand what it is to be devotees of Christ as our center is that we neglect to remember that we have to read these stories through a lens of awareness of those who are hurting. The Bible, among all the religious classics, is the one religious classic that is written from the standpoint of the oppressed. And that's really important to see. He got it and became among the most relevant voices, I think, maybe in the whole history of Christianity. Absolutely. I love that you, uh, again, make a hermeneutical principle so clear. And you, in your writing, you connect that to the Adventist conversations, controversy over women's ordination. And again, you sort of uh, obliterate the standard uh, structure of the opponents by pointing out that most of the those writers, those theologians, those pastors, those administrators are almost all white men. Now, you and I are also uh, in that category, but the point that you make, and I'd love for you to expound upon here, is that the reason this has been such a, a miserable issue for the church for generations is because we haven't really listened to the people who are oppressed, who are at the center of the discussion here. Why? Well, I don't, and I think that we don't listen. Uh, We usually have a motivation if we're unwilling to listen. And the motivation, I think, in this case, probably is that it's comfortable for white men to hold on to the advantage, the status, even the slight advantage in terms of pay that accompanies the uh, accompanies the uh, the fact that you are qualified or seen to be qualified to ordain. Now, someone is bound to point out, by the way, Alex, that there's quite a bit of opposition to the ordination of women in some of the brown skin circles in Adventism. Sure. So I need to make it very clear here that I was talking about the theological writing, which I think has been the opponents are dominantly white men. And uh, if these opponents could only imagine themselves into the shoes of the many young women who have attended the seminary, or if the many uh, congregants in places like Azure Hills right now, for example, or the church at La Sierra, where 
members of congregations are grateful for and inspired by women ministers. If if the opponents can only imagine themselves into this these situations and not be so preoccupied with their own uh, understandings and maybe even their own status, I think it could change. But it is very hard to convince the privileged to embrace the value of empathy. And if we were willing to, we would find that the reading of the scripture opens the doorway to the embrace of women as leaders. It doesn't close it. Yes. You know, I want to go back into your history. And I'm just curious, you mentioned uh, your uh, journalism teacher that you had there at Walla Walla. Were there other um, women in your life that you worked with uh, in your sort of theological work or your administrative work uh, that helped you understand this this ethic, uh, this commitment to empathy and you know, this willingness to enter into someone else's experience and see it from their point of view? Uh, I, I'm sure the answer is yes. I mean, Roberta had a tremendous impact on me. But when I was at Walla Walla, it was still, in those days, a pretty male-oriented place. I didn't have a Greek teacher who was a woman, and we respected her a lot for what she did. And when I got to the seminary, I had Leona running as an uh, instructor of Hebrew, and uh, she was clearly, to any uh, young man who was half awake, not drugged into some kind of uh, uh, nonchalance or indifference, she was clearly on a par in terms of her ability with anyone you'd ever met before. So uh, I think she was inspiring to me. I wish I could say, but I cannot say that I ever became a close friend of hers, but I did admire her a lot. And when I finally became one of the founding editors of Insight Magazine, by that time, the church was wise enough to uh, have hired a colleague who was a woman to be the other associate editor. Her name was Pat Horning. And uh, it was good to work from the beginning with a colleague who was my equal. So I think that these early experiences did have the kind of effect that uh, you just mentioned. I began to realize slowly, and by the way, I should say, as yet incompletely, because I'm a man and I'll still have a certain uh, uh, sensibility that's never completely redeemed in this life. But I began to be able to slowly to understand that men are not the only answer to what's right in the world. <laughs> we have to listen. Yes. Well, uh, speaking about listening, I hope folks have been enjoying this uh, conversation because I'm planning on doing a series of these uh, because I want to weave in um, your writing with your reflections uh, on your life, in part because I'm really curious about uh, getting to know you better. And so as we wrap up here, uh, thinking about this uh, concept of the living word. And I want to focus on that living part because it's it's great as a human, as much as we sort of hate the existential uh, dread that we sometimes bear, the burden of consciousness, um, the misery that's around us, uh, life in Christ is offered. Certainly, we bear a yoke, 
But at the same time, we're given an opportunity for something abundant and and something in solidarity with others. And I'm curious what that that lived Christianity has meant to you as you reflect on your Christian history for uh, several decades. Well, let me say, uh, first of all, that when I speak of the living word, of course, I'm speaking of the resurrected Christ who does indeed uh, reach down to us through the presence of God or what we call the Holy Spirit and does through the Holy Spirit invite us to grow. Uh, the word is living. It's not dead. It's not something that is cast in concrete. It is instead something that will lead us on a pathway of constant growth and constant. It will bring to us a constant challenge to receive conviction because we want to uh, see how to walk in the way. We're on a journey and we need to be constantly reminded of this. Now, in my own case, I've been fortunate because I really think that I have, over my lifetime, always had a circle of uh, friends, co-workers, who have been themselves a great source of encouragement. So for me, the presence of the living word, the reality of Christ today, the presence of the Holy Spirit today is evidenced in and through the circle of fellow Christians. I, I was fortunate, for example, to become very close to the teacher. I One teacher I must much admired at the seminary, Roy Branson. We worked together, lived together. I uh, hired people when I was the president of uh, Columbia Union or Washington Adventist University who were themselves very inspiring to me. We would uh, often eat together and pray together. And we would often find ourselves talking about the possible future that lays out there in front of us for an Adventism that becomes renewed. I would say for me, there is no substitute for a circle of friends or what maybe the theoreticians of congregations might call small groups, a circle of friends who are honest who permit you to be absolutely honest, who encourage you to raise your doubts, and at the same time, point you in directions which enabled you to cope with doubts. So the living word is the presence of the Holy Spirit, and the presence of the Holy Spirit, the presence of Christ, occurs where two or three are gathered together. That is to say, it is a matter of participation in community. And, uh, you know, I'm about to write a final piece in my series, which I think I'll call the quest for community. And one thing I certainly will emphasize, there is no hope for renewed Adventism, except as there is renewal and strengthening of Bible study in small groups where people not only learn together, but care for one another. That's where you encounter the living Christ. And for me, I've had that a lot of my adult life, and it's been a blessing. I cannot, I cannot state its importance in excess. It's just been quite wonderful, and that's what I recommend to anyone who is struggling to keep a connection with the living Christ. Mm. Find a circle from which you can gain both encouragement and challenge, and in that circle, where two or three or more are gathered, 
you will encounter the living Christ, or at least that has been my experience, and I'm grateful for it. Well, I'm looking forward to reading your call to community uh, in your um, uh, next uh, addition to this series. And I'm also looking forward to chatting with you down the road because I want to hear your story of the 1995 ordination uh, that happened at Sligo while you were there. So um, stay tuned, folks. We'll see if we can uh, use a little journalism here and get the who, what, where, when, and why uh, from that uh, great historical moment in Adventism. Thank you, Chuck, so much for sharing uh, with our community today and for all that you've done for us uh, for uh, your history connected to this community. Thank you, Alex. It's a pleasure and an inspiration to be in a circle like this. Thank you so much. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear.